Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. All right, everyone, welcome back to One Broken Mom. Um, I'm going to start off the episode today with a few grim statistics. One is women live longer. Women uh, get college degrees more so than men and as a result adopt an awful lot of debt. Women pay more in interest in debt from mortgages to credit cards to student loans. Women have more unpaid medical bills than men. Women have less savings for rainy days as well as retirement than men. Women are paid 20% less than men, and the equality in pay is not projected to be resolved for 43 years, which is like another two generations. Twice as many men pass financial literacy tests than women, and divorce threatens the financial stability of women far more than it does men. One in five women fall into poverty because of divorce. Three out of four divorced mothers don't receive their full child support payments. About one out of every three women who own a home and have children lose the home in the divorce. And about a third of working women can't meet an unexpected $2,000 expense within 30 days. Now, the solution that I have seen out there and what most women receive is that we just need to simply teach women financial literacy, and then it's all good. But speaking as a woman who considers herself relatively financially literate as being a business owner and aware of my own money disorders, I think that that attitude falls way short in terms of really being able to help women understand why they are obviously at a financial disadvantage. So that's why I asked Brad Klontz to come back on the show today. And so Brad is a leading financial psychologist and the author of five books on the topic, including Mind Over Money, Overcoming the Money Disorders That Threaten Our Financial Health. So welcome back, Brad. Thanks so much for having me back. I mean, happy to be here. Awesome. So I guess I want to tackle the topic today because I see it impacting women really in two ways. One is at the personal level. And also I've seen money disorders affect women in business because I've been a business and marketing coach for many years. And they struggle with setting their value. And that is what they should be charging for their services and their products. And when I've coached women business owners, many times the conversation circles around the topic of valuation. And I've coached them out of the emotional realm of thinking of what they're worth and trying to give them a dispassionate way of calculating their value, presenting facts to them, how to do market research, how to see what the market bears for pricing so that we don't have to worry about whatever emotional barriers that they have with price setting. And we can get down to what the numbers actually tell them what they should be doing. One of the other phenomena that though I've always noticed with women business owners and top, you know, I'm actually guilty of this is that when the bank account for your small business is the same as your household account, or you're like a freelancer or consultant, and you're not running an organization, it's easy to have your money disorders that affect you personally actually impact your business as well. 
And so while you may be successful um, with your business, the problem is, is that you may not be getting enough wealth from your business because whatever affects your your um, spending or valuation or any of those other elements actually ends up making your business not be uh, what you'd hoped it could be. And I see that a lot of times with women. And then, and finally, one of the things that we know is that women actually leave the workforce to stay home as the caregiver. And that ends up interrupting a woman's momentum in their careers. And a lot of people think that that actually plays into why there is a salary gap in the genders because of the fact that women have these gaps in their work history. And because that she's already probably earning less than the male counterpart in the household, if there is a male counterpart, it makes financial sense for her to take that time off to stay home to care for ailing parents or to care for children or anything like that. And so women end up kind of being trapped in this vicious cycle. And so I wonder out loud as a woman, are women actually sacrificing their careers again from what Brad calls unfinished business in his book and the scripts that we've been taught about what our value is and and how we approach and think about money. So I want to start this conversation off with you, Brad. In your work and research, what are the some of the typical unfinished business stories that you've seen that women get that's actually very different than the stories in um, scripts that men receive as they're growing up around money and value? Yeah, so um, really sort of painful list of facts there <laughs> that I'm, I'm feeling, um, you know, for, for the women in my life, you know, as well as about the clients I work with. I mean, those statistics are very real, and they have a huge impact on the lives of women. Um, and the, the, the fact is that we socialize little girls differently than we socialize little boys around money. Um, and this has been researched quite extensively, and unfortunately, it's still happening. But we are giving messages to, to little girls that are very different than to little boys, including messages around it's okay to be financially dependent on a, a male. Like this is a message that is still getting passed down to girls. Hold finances much earlier um, and much more extensively. And then when they go off to college, there's a um, boys will go off to college with a, a much deeper sense that I have to make money on my own. I'm going to be on my own. They actually get less financial support than their sisters do. And I think when you add up an entire upbringing of being socialized very differently around money, I think that leads to a lifetime of unfinished business and it leads to a lack of confidence. Um, what's so interesting about confidence as a construct is that it really doesn't have much to do with financial literacy. It's, it's actually separate. Um, and you know, when you're, when you're lacking confidence, you, you, of course, have lower self-esteem in the area of money, which is actually going to lead to you not being as empowered to ask for a raise, for example, or value on your work. Um, and that, that's the concept because a lack of confidence actually is what helps women be better actual investors than men you know, <laughs> because they are more willing to question themselves and to, you know, think through decisions and be, being less cocky and overconfident, frankly. Studies have been done on that too. But it also can be really, it can hamper a woman's um, ability to advocate for herself in, in terms of, like I said, negotiations around a salary or, um, you know, just this, this, this subjective mindset of, you know, upward mobility is, is available for me and actually I deserve it. Um, and what's so interesting about that subjective mindset, you know, and we can talk a lot about culture and, and some of the bar- very real institutional barriers and sexism that is ex- is very real thing that's happening. Um, and I, I talk to my clients about that, too. Like it's, it's really important to understand that this is happening and it's not just you. Um, th- these things are actually happening and it's a struggle um, and you're going to have to struggle through that. 
Um, but of course, and you know this too, in your own consulting, um, what, what I really want to do is, is to work with my clients around, okay, so what parts of this can you control? What parts of this can you make, um, you know, improvements here and now in your life? And one of those is this subjective evaluation that we have of ourselves and our own sense of worth. Um, because whether it's relationships or, you know, your job and salary, relationship with money, um, what, how you value yourself, the rest of the world is going to agree with you. Your boss is going to agree with you. If you, if you put a very high price tag on your work and um, what you're producing, your boss is going to agree with you that it's worth a lot eventually. Um, if you think really poorly of yourself, your boss is going to agree with you. Um, so it's, it's just such a powerful thing that um, it's not easy to research, but it's just totally pervasive around um, that sense of who you believe you are and, and how you show up in the world with that belief. The rest of the world is going to interact with you and basically agree with you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like setting the bar, right? And uh, telling everybody what the standard, what your level is, and everybody meets you at that level, um, whether it's high or, or whether it's low. Um, you know, one of the things that I would say that I never received the, personally the messages that I needed to rely on men for money or anything like that. And in fact, I put myself through college. I applied for all my scholarships. I worked jobs, you know, endlessly. Uh, we had talked about in the first, you know, the other episode you and I did that workaholism is one of my money disorders. Like it's, you know, seven days a week all the time that I had to really kind of get myself out of that. Um, but I'll tell you the strongest thing that I've always felt was growing up in a household where I did a lot of work for the family, in particular, you know, caregiving for my younger brothers and never being paid for it. And when asking for that, being told, no, no, you don't get anything. You have to work and you're not worth anything. And I didn't go, I didn't see that as an impact on me as an adult. Until I realized here I am in my 30s, I couldn't ask for raises. If anybody around me said, you know, no, you don't get more money or you don't get paid at all, I wholeheartedly agreed with it because there was this constant message in my head of that I was expected to work and provide services and that someone had told me on a very regular basis that those services weren't worth any, weren't worth money. They just, you know, you just needed to do it. And when um, somebody finally, like many years ago, had said, I mean, you should be making twice what you're making doing what you're doing. Stop letting people do that to you. It was like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. But then getting to the place of being able to actually ask for it um, was, a, you know, a big stretch, you know, and I still today have a hard time, even though I coach other businesses, it's easier to be, again, a dispassionate coach for somebody and then I'll apply it to myself. Um, and so I, you know, I get the confidence piece, but it's still a tricky, you know, tricky area. What kind of the money disorders, and you talk about money disorders in your book, what are some of the money disorders then that you see as a result of this messaging that, you know, little girls get and women get about their value and their worth and, and who's, who should be financially knowledgeable and who shouldn't that you see women expressing, um, is there some, several that seem more common than others? Yeah, a couple really do come to mind and you, you nailed one of them, which is under earning. So, so basically you're, um, not valuing your work or you're, you're allowing yourself to exist in a, a group of people who continue to not value your work. Um, and, and again, those things are very much interrelated. Um, and, and so then you chronically undercharge, um, and probably over deliver. And, um, and again, like whatever you, uh, put a price tag on people will, um, agree with you. Um, so under earning is a really powerful one. Um, that can be extremely devastating. And I would definitely put that in the category of a self-destructive financial behavior. Um, the other thing is that um, women have a tendency to be pretty nice. <laughs> right. Damn Not them. to generalize. 
<laughs> yeah, but but you know, there's there's a lot of research to support this too. I mean, um, they're they're much more agreeable. They they are much more focused on um, you know loving the people around them and being concerned about. Um, but so women also, I think, have a tendency to be vulnerable to financial enabling others. Mm-hmm. And um, the financial enabling is, we call it financial help that hurts because it's coming from a place of, I want to help you. I care about you. you. You certainly have a need. I have some ability to help you with that. And, and so then I give you money. Now, unfortunately, that gift of money is also, is also where they're, uh, you know, perhaps living out of integrity with their money or they're misbehaving around money and you're supporting them. And sometimes that's done out of a sense of guilt. Like I have more than you have. And women who are especially vulnerable to this are ones who are making more money than or have more money than their closest family and friends. That sense of guilt and that sense of disconnection from your family and friends can be a huge psychological trigger for you to give away your money. Hmm. Um, so that's something that, 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 that happens Mm, it's interesting. Quite often. And, and I've done both of those. Like I said, we talked about the undervaluing piece. Um, it, your, your comment about nice is really kind of funny because I was thinking about today as I was um, getting, you know, getting excited about talking to you. And one of the questions or one of the thoughts that came into my head was, you know, when I've gone in to ask for more money to, you know, either a raise or just say, hey, we need to readjust salaries. And as a business owner or co-owner with people, I've had to do this quite often where it's not like I've, I've been an employee really as often as I've been a business owner with partners. And the story that I get most of the time is, oh, I'd love to pay you more, but we just don't have the money for that. And I don't have any frame of reference because I've never negotiated as a man. And I'm just, I was always curious, like today I was like, I wonder how often a guy is actually told that. Because again, my, my realm is I've never had to negotiate with a woman. I've always been at the, uh, you know, I guess say control or, uh, you know, under the, the power of a man who has that type of a, an ability to assign value. And, um, have you ever heard like when guys go in for raises, like, what do they, what do they hear? Cause like I said, I'm told, Oh, I'd love to, but, and you go, Oh yeah, you're right. Like I'm so nice. I don't want to hurt the company. I don't want to hurt, you know, or blah, 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 blah. And I've gotten screwed, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, no, you're, you're so nice to me. So, so here we are, we're going over our list of employees, you know, because we have to think about bonuses and raises. And so let's go through the list here. Um, okay. We've got about 10 of them. She'll be fine with not getting a raise. Oh, oh my goodness. He's going to be really upset. It's going to be a very uncomfortable conversation. He is not nearly as nice and agreeable, and, and we can't really afford to that. Actually, if I don't take care of them, they're going to be really upset and probably leave me. Um, but but Ami, she's so nice. She's never going to go anywhere. I mean, she's just a really nice person. She's dedicated to the company. Um, she's so nice to talk with. It won't be a problem. I mean, she'll be upset for a little bit, but you know, we'll, I'll just you know give her some flowers or something. It'll be fine. Um, and so, so that's what happens sort of on, from the business perspective, not that people are doing this now in a, in a subversive way, but that's just how it plays out. Like if, if you're, if you're too agreeable, people are going to walk all over you mm-hmm. and not even nice people will do it. Um, and so it, it really does pay to be less agreeable. And by the way, tons of studies on this, what I'm talking about. So, um, and so in psychology, we would then work with assertiveness training. You know, you've probably heard that, that word. Mm-hmm. And so and, and all of us, anyone who's, who's really high on that scale of agreeableness, and it's not just women, men too, but women have a tendency to be more agreeable, um, have to work on not being quite so nice because in the business world, people will have a tendency to take advantage of that. Again, not necessarily that they're setting out to take advantage of all the nice people, but that's just how it plays out when they're going over their list of employees and what they need to do next. 
Yeah, that actually um, kind of spurs on a thought. This is one of the other phenomena that I've seen in working with women, you know, uh, networking with women and stuff like that is that I have seen this really um, uh, like almost appalled uh, towards a woman who suddenly decides that she needs to charge for something. She's doing a service. And I'll use an example of, you know, networking and saying, hey, you know, I do a lot of networking. I have a big email list. And I think that if you want me to promote your business, you should pay me for that because I've got these assets that I've generated. And other women actually being super upset about that and almost insulted by the fact that this other woman is finally saying, hey, I have value here. My value does enhance you and your business. But this, this idea that we shouldn't be charging at all for it, we should all just be on this boat together, helping each other out and doing it all for free really does even set other women off against each other, you know, in that area. What do you think is a little, what do you think is behind that piece of it? Cause it, 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 I see some women just go, golly, I can't even like charge 80 bucks to, you know, sell an ad in my monthly newsletter, you know, without it being like this huge uproar and that you suddenly hate other women. You know? Yeah. So um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, some of which might apply. <laughs> so I'll just share with share them. Sure. Um, you know, it's this group of people that we sort of share similar beliefs around what's normal, about what's right, about you know how much money we're making, that kind of thing. Um, and if you're if you're going to try to rise above that or do something different, you're going to get tons of blowback from everyone else around you. Um, meanwhile, there's a whole, there's a whole nother socioeconomic herd over here where it's just a given that of course we're going to pay you for that asset. Are you, I mean, what world do you live in in which I wouldn't pay you for that asset? That's a ridiculous idea. Of course I would. And so there's a whole reality where people are operating in that reality. Um, and so those are the people you want to get to know and spend more time with if you're wanting to join a group of people who actually get paid for their assets and their work. Mm -hmm. Um, that people, that group of women too, they do exist. And they won't, um, they won't find us that um, this is, it's extremely difficult to rise above that by doing something new because we have a tendency to get looked down upon by those people. Like, who do you think you are? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's sort of the same, that's sort of what's happening. And the message you're getting, like, I mean, who do you think you are to charge for this? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, um, I, I'm a business owner, you know? I mean, it's, I'm trying to operate in a business that's profitable. Like, I mean, how's that right. for an idea? Yeah. Um, is that a pretty cool idea? <laughs> and so I, I, I encourage people to, you know, to break out of that is a very difficult psychological thing. And I just want to spend a minute talking about that. Like we are wired for survival, okay? And to survive for tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, you had to belong to your tribe. Because if you did not belong to your tribe, you would get kicked out and you would die and eaten by a predator or die of starvation. And not only that, your children would die. So it creates a tremendous amount of psychological discomfort. It, it actually hits the parts of our brain that, that are based on survival that tell you you're going to die if you charge for them to advertise on your email list. Now, that's not the thought we have up here, but that's the emotional reaction we have. And it's intense and it's pervasive and it'll take over your entire life. And it's the reason why we see people do terrible things with money, win the lottery and blow it all. Makes no sense. These are smart people who do this. So, you know, this is back to your financial literacy you know, question, you know, does that solve all the problems? And the answer is absolutely not. Um, because we have, we have this wiring and this emotional relationship with money. And so much of it is related to the people we're around. And so just understanding that if you want to make significant gains in your financial life, there are, there's going to be an entire group of people that are going to be aligned against you the further you wonder, you know, who does she think she is now? Is she no longer one of us? So it's a huge, powerful thing. And so it, it's, it's, especially for 
people who are very much connected to people around relate in a relationship sense, so which can make it more challenging for women who tend to have deeper um, and, and more long lasting and more, you know, integrated relationships with people. It can feel like even a bigger existential threat um, versus like, oh, I'll just find some new friends, you know? Um, but that's what I, I sort of jokingly say that to people. Like if you really want to, you know, let's say you're, you're, lower middle class or whatever, and you want to become a millionaire, I tell people, um, it's a, it's a huge challenge because you're going to, your money, you're getting rid of all your friends. And, um, you know, there are exceptions to that. Like maybe you could keep a friend or two, but I doubt it. But maybe if you work really hard at it, the two of you do. Um, but I, I think it's just worthy. It's just so important to note that because, um, such a powerful emotional psychological trigger to, to getting above whatever's comfortable in your tribe. And so you're going to get tons of, um, negative energy coming towards you. Yeah. And you're right. Women, because of their, they tend to be much more emotionally connected with each other. It is harder and um, guilt, you know, like you touched on there that you can feel guilty and shameful for, you know, thinking that you're, you're leaving people behind. Nobody wants to leave anybody behind. And it feels like sometimes in our society, our society and our culture that women feel more strongly compelled to try to take care of everybody as much as they can. Um, I do. And I run into this too, as a business coach of when I'm working with a client and getting them to level up, you know, they want want a better, a better different type of a client for their source, you know, for whatever their product or service is. And it's like, okay, we got to raise the price. Like you got to go up to, you know, the price level that attracts the type of, you know, demographic that you're looking for. And there's always that lag of, you know, losing the old clients and then having to pioneer and market to the new clients. It doesn't just turn around like overnight, like it takes time. So there's always this source that I'm like cheerleading them through that dead zone, you know, where it's like maybe a couple of months of like the phone doesn't ring as much and there aren't people coming and it's just like, don't backslide, keep up there. It's like, we have to just, you know, keep messaging and you'll get the people there. And then finally, when they get the clients, they start to build up their life, but they want to go back and they want to cut their price back down. And, um, and like I said, a lot of these times, these are women business owners, you know, that feel like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm trying to level up and I can't, and it's scary. I'm going to lose business. And it's like, you just got to kind of like breathe yourself through it and you'll, you'll get there. Um, so I, you know, one of the questions that I have is, uh, I feel like, you know, we talked about this, uh, you know, a little bit on the other episode. Occasionally I got messages about money, but a lot of times I feel like that value piece of it, you know, um, the devaluing part of it wasn't because we really talked about money very often, but there were other, you know, subtle messages in the household and stuff like that. And so I'm wondering and want to see if you can answer for me is how often is a money disorder actually related to money itself and isn't actually symptomatic of some other scripting or messaging that a woman may have received while she was growing up that affects her ability to desire financial literacy or feel comfortable with bill paying or again, understands that she's worth something and that she needs to be confident and being able to let the world know what her value really is. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's all, there's a whole plethora of ways that we can misbehave around money. When I say misbehave, I mean, engage in self-destructive or self-limiting financial behaviors. In fact, it's quite ubiquitous. Like the average American has a money disorder when it comes to like how much money they're saving or not, you know, how they're overspending. And this is my, this is sort of my um, criticism of the financial literacy. By the way, I love financial literacy. Okay. It's great. It is important. The more you know, the better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is important, but it, it's not that important. Um, like, you know, the big problems we have is we spend too much and we don't save enough. Okay. Those are the two big problems. Now, um, everybody I've met already knows better than that. 
Like I've yet to meet some, meet somebody who says, Oh, you mean I'm not supposed to save, you know, money or I'm not supposed to spend more than my paycheck every month. Is that what you're telling me? Wow. Thank you for educating me. No, everybody already knows. And those are the two big problems. And so, so, um, these behaviors we're engaging in can seem actually can seem kind of crazy. Like, you know, I've seen some really crazy financial behaviors. I know you have too. But if you really get at the beliefs underneath it, it'll all make total sense. Like the craziest, most self-destructive behavior um, that we can feel really out of control around will make perfect sense to us if we did start parents taught us and that unfinished business you're mentioning. Did we experience some sort of traumatic event in our childhood related to money or not that has given us this idea that there's never going to be enough, for example, like a scarcity mindset. There's never going to be enough. Quite often, it comes from an absolute reality experience that you had as a child or that your grandparents had or your, sometimes your great-grandparents. This stuff can get passed down through the generations in a very unconscious way. You just have this belief that there's never going to be enough. And not only that, you have countless examples of where there's never been enough. And you have many of your friends who can verify for you that this is reality. And then when you meet someone like a me who's coaching you and says, you got to raise your rates and a month into it, you don't have any clients. You're like, oh my gosh, and you revert right back to, as you said, you know, you'll, you'll, you know, quit, quit along that path and then sabotage yourself basically. Um, and so I, I think that it's so important to think back to um, and to start analyzing that behavior and look back to what is your unfinished business? Who taught you this? Where did you learn this? Um, because you learned it in an, in an experience or an environment where that was the truth. Like that was the actual experience and you had to cope with it. Um, and the unfortunate thing about these beliefs is they're very unconscious. They sort of, um, you know, they sort of clank around in your subconscious mind and they drive all of your financial behaviors. So this belief that may no longer be relevant um, and quite often is irrelevant is you can be operating as if it's totally true right now, e- even though the world has changed and you're repeating patterns that sometimes have gone on for generations. And so being aware of that, where it came from, for, for me, it's because number one, you're not going to feel quite as ashamed because we feel incredible amounts of shame around our financial mishaps. We're embarrassed by it. Um, tons of shame around money. Actually, shame when you have too much money too, by the way. So we have a lot of shame around money. And, um, and so one of, the, one of the ways to push through that shame is to blame your parents <laughs> um, and to sort of put it into a historical context. So of course you have this problem. You came from that group of people and they were raised by this group of people. And, you know, for example, and they experienced the Great Depression and were living in abject poverty. So no wonder you're anxious about not having enough. Of course you are. And so if you can really pin it um, back, and and again, sometimes for generations, it'll make you feel better about yourself. It'll make total sense why you're doing what you're doing. And we can just at least get rid of that shame piece. Yuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that is, you know, I I feel like even though I know I want to talk about this with you, and I know that part of what I do with my show is I'm transparent about my own, you know, hurdles. This is the one topic where I'm the most embarrassed to sit there and go, I've got credit card debt. I've got a car loan. I've got, you know, I've got problems to me. I've got problems to deal with. And uh, admitting that it's like, <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting there going, you, I feel like what you, you, you feel can happen to you is that how can you be a business coach? How can you be a professional, you know, that it cares about mental wellness and yet still have money problems? Like that must mean that you, you can't do both, that you can't be a competent business person and still have issues, you know, with paying bills, you know, or um, for me, it is still, um, and I, and, you know, been working on this for months and it, it makes it hard to change your mindset about money. I have to tell you that working with mental health and with all the things that I've done in the last, like, 
you know, 15, 16, 17 months, the money piece of it is the hardest nut to crack. And I don't, you know, why is that? You know, why is money and how we feel about it so hard to do given the fact that I feel like I've overcome a lot of other, you know, hurdles and stuff and in terms of mental wellness and parenting? Yeah. So fabulous question. And um, it has been something that has been known for hundreds of years, actually, like how shameful this topic is and how embarrassing it is and how difficult it is. Um, you know, the, the uh, um, field of psychology, we've done some studies on that. They have a you know, conflicted relationship with money. Um, money is one of those things that impacts every area of our life. And it's what it's a huge, there's a huge cultural taboo to even talking about it. Um, and so we get constant messages like, oh, oh my gosh, you're not supposed to ask somebody how much they make. Oh my goodness. Well, you can, of course, ask them what they do, whether they're married, whether they have kids, all these other things that people worry about. But oh my goodness, never ask someone how much money they make. And so we're, we're, why is that? Well, apparently there's a lot of shame around it or risk in talking about it. We grow up seeing your parents fight about money. You know, that tells you, oh, it's a very dangerous topic. We can't talk about it. Um, and so I think that the level of taboo we have as a culture leads to the problem. It's a huge part of the problem. People in surveys are, you know, like, like men would be much more willing to talk about um, their impotence and and the fact they're on medication for it than their credit card debt. It's like, what's that about? Like, isn't that kind of a shameful thing for a lot of people? Um, But it's like, we'd rather talk to our kids about um, the birds and the bees than about money. It's such a huge, shameful topic. And it really shouldn't be. Um, I mean, I don't think it needs to be. And it's one of the things I love about your podcast and your work is, is that transparency. Um, and so I always like to talk about my financial problems too, for the, for the express purpose to let people know that, um, you're not alone. Like this is, this is a struggle for most people. Like for example, my wife's a psychologist. Um, I'm a psychologist. I'm an expert in this area. And you know, what are, what topic do we have the most struggle getting on the same page around money? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's, it's because, because, (laughs) because we're in a relationship. And we come from different families who had different beliefs around money. We were raised differently. Even if you're in the same neighborhood, it's going to be different. And so we have these unconscious beliefs that are very much tied to our emotions around how we want to structure our approach and our relationship with money. So um, I I think it's hugely important for people to know you're not alone um, and that you probably have engaged in self-destructive financial behaviors. You probably are right now. And um, it's okay. Welcome to the club. And we can all get better. together. <laughs> right. Hey, that's my tagline. <laughs> oh, it is. That's yeah. great. <laughs> so, um, uh, and it, it, let me just, let me just pick on financial literacy a little bit more too, because the problem I have with financial literacy as the solution is it sort of says that, well, you're kind of an idiot, you know, like you you just don't know. Right. And, um, what, what I, it's just not true. And, and so I'll give you an example. So we recently did a study um, and we ran it in five different states and we tried to increase people's savings rates. And so we put half of the group in a financial literacy class where they were taught, you know, how to save, what are the various savings vehicles? This is a good percentage of money to save. So we did that financial literacy piece. Um, and then the other group, we had them, instead of doing that, we had them visualize and get really excited about why they want to save to begin with. Like, what's in it for you? Like, um, is it a vacation? Is it, I had them creating a vision board type thing. Um, and then we tracked their savings rates. So that group, I didn't give them an ounce of information around what they should be saving and the percentages and all that financial literacy stuff. Um, and then we tracked their savings rates. And that financial literacy group increased their savings rates by 22%. 
which is outstanding. So let's say they were saving 10%. Now they're saving 12%. That's fabulous. That group where we got them really excited about why they're saving and, and they're related to their values, their core values, the people they love. Why would you do this? Why would you delay gratification right now for the future? That group increased their savings rates by over 70%. Wow. So they went from about 10% to 17%. Um, and it was clear about why you want to do this to begin with. And it was all related to their values and their family. Of course, it was related to what mattered most. But really spending the time to get a clear picture of what that is um, and visualize that and represent that. So just a little, you know, financial literacy is great, but I don't think it's, it's, it's really the, the primary problem or the primary solution. Yeah. And I, and I would agree with that. I mean, I said that at the beginning of it, that I think that it's an easy, uh, it it seems like it's an easy solution, but that also, you know, those statistics that I read off at the beginning of the, of this interview, they don't break down the socioeconomic backgrounds of it. These are all women, women that go from, you know, high school educations to I've got a master's degree and guess what? I'm in this big depressing category, you know, of being behind, you know, regardless of, of, you know, that. And, and like I said, I see it with business women owner. They, have financial literacy enough to know, but it, it is kind of, it, that's not really what it is. I will tell you that I like that study that you did there because for me personally, that has been shifting my focus from really trying to apply all these spreadsheets and tools and percentages and all that hasn't made as much of an impact on me in the last several years as what you said, which is putting a vision of myself five years into the future and knowing that I can't get there if I continue to do A, B, C, D, and E. And, and, and those things are, what am I doing to take my own legs out from underneath me financially? Because if that's really the vision that I want for myself, the person that I am today and the way that I address my life and the finances is not going to happen because that person out there five years doesn't have a bunch of credit card bills and doesn't have a bunch of car loans and the student loans paid off and there's nothing anchoring her to monthly payments everywhere. She's free and clear. And that has been, a, you know, for me psychologically is like, okay, that helps me stay motivated to then on a day-to-day basis overcome that, that scarcity anxiety of like, here come the bills. Oh my God, do I have enough money? And, you know, and sitting there, thinking about my messaging to my kids. I don't want to tell them there's no money. There's no money. Cause I don't want them to take that message forward, you know, in life and, and believe that there's never enough out there. Um, and so I, I like that you did that. I believe that 70% totally believe that totally believe that that can shift, you know, a person's mindset regarding their savings. Um, you know, I wanted to ask about the salary gap, you know, that we see it's 20% between, you know, men and women out there and knowing that men and women receive different messages about finances growing up, you know, I, I imagine that they also, you know, a, a boy is being taught a message about himself and money. And he's also probably getting the same message that the girl is getting that she should be in this role and position in life. And so, you know, I wonder if you have an opinion on this is like, how much do we think salary gaps actually end up coming down to this cultural differences between what money, you know, what men think about money for themselves and for women and what women are carrying with themselves into the negotiation and the um, employment place that says, I, I, you know, I have these deep seated, you know, unconscious beliefs about myself and my own value. Because I kind of look at it like we can't just, um, you know, change women. We also need to change the messages men receive about money. Am I right? Wrong? Yeah. So that the whole topic of the gender wage gap, it's it's multifactorial. So it's a huge issue that isn't easily you know identified. Like what is the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, multiple problems, multiple societal um, influences. I, I, it's it's absolutely true that as a culture 
for example, we don't value childcare um, the way that we frankly should. And I have little children, and I know that there is a there is a dollar amount to to spending a lot of time with those kids, and and it's not a relaxing experience. Let me just put it that way. Feels like work sometimes. Okay, mm-hmm. you might love your work, but it's definitely work. Um, and so I think as a culture, for sure, things like that um, come into play. And so, um, you know, time off the workforce, et cetera. But I also feel like, you know, obviously as a psychologist, I am very much interested in what can I do with this person in terms of increasing their particular pay. Um, and I think, I think understanding the socialization is critically important because then you have to combat it. Mm -hmm. You have to combat it within yourself. You have to advocate for yourself. Um, you have to basically become less agreeable in terms of your approach to negotiating, you have to ask for what you want. You, um, you have to engage in all the negotiation strategies. And that, that's, that is a good area of actual literacy that I point people to is read a couple books on how to negotiate. The, the nice approach doesn't really work if you actually want to make more money in those types of situations. Um, and, so, and also looking at some of that self-talk around my own value um, and why would that be okay. And what's interesting, I'll, I'll just, you know, a little bit of a side note here, but we're not socializing girls to be like, you know, go ahead and, you know, be financially dependent on a, on a male. But what we are telling them is that it's okay if you are. And we're telling boys, absolutely, it's not okay. Not only that, I'm not even supporting you as much when you go off to college, you got to get your own job. So I mean, there's a sense of there's a scarcity sense that we're giving boys too, and some, that's sort of the flip side of it. You know, it's like, there's some more nurturing and financial support going on with our girls which from the outside looks good, right? I mean, that's a nice thing to do. We're being meaner to our boys and telling them they're going to have to do it all by themselves. Um, and which, which does lead, you know, there's some positive outcomes to that because they're like, oh, I guess I got to do this by myself. And there's more incentive to do that because they have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I could also see the downside to that messaging, which is a much more of an aggressiveness towards keeping your resources and fighting rather than um, feeling comfortable with sharing your resources and, sh- and, and being okay with some dependence, that somebody is dependent on you. And that probably does lend itself into some of the fights that couples, you know, have. I know I've seen, yeah, and we've all seen this, that, you know, guys uh, get really upset about women that just want them for their money. I mean, they're like protective of it. And women don't often complain about that. <laughs> like you said, they, one of their common disorders seems to be that they're willing to kind of give it away, you know, a lot more and stuff. So it's, uh, it's, it's such an important point you're making and how the genders look at quote household income is very different. And this has been studied and women have a tendency to look at it as like the household income is our money. And when the male's making a bigger chunk of it, he has a tendency to look at it. Well, that's actually my money, mm-hmm. <laughs> regardless of what this like, terrible things. Um, for example, financial infidelity, which is where you're keeping secrets from your spouse around spending and that kind of thing. Um, both genders are guilty of it. Um, women have a tendency to spend things that they don't tell their um, male partners about having to do with, you know, things for the kids, right? Males have a tendency to buy stuff for themselves and not tell their spouse. Um, and it ha- tends to be bigger ticket items. So this is another example of how that socialization plays out and the, and the downside to that sort of scarcity mindset that sometimes we're given voice, which is like, you know, you're all on your own. 
nobody's here to help you. If you want to get it, you got to get it yourself. Oh, I was going to say, I've had that experience myself in, in uh, marriage where it was, um, it was hard to buy something simple like a new hair dryer without it coming with a high degree of scrutiny. <laughs> and, then, um, and then me conversely encouraging my partner, hey, you got a bonus. Go spend it on something nice for yourself. Like go treat yourself. I mean, you're being rewarded for hard work and everything like that. And, but there was this like very stingy, you know, a, a doling out of small bits of it, which I guess, uh, you know, as a woman who is dealing with valuation, all that d- did for me for many years was just reinforce the fact that I was not as worth as much to the household and to life because I, I was letting somebody else essentially assign that value for me or question when I decided to assert a little bit of that. And I can imagine that that at home then likely influences then when that woman, myself, who was a business owner and a businesswoman would go back out and engage with other men in the business world, knowing that it, even in my own home with a partner I chose, I'm still being told that I don't, I don't deserve as much or I, you know, and I need to give up everything for everybody else. Does that sound about right? Yes, it, it does. And, you know, one thought that came to mind earlier that I, that I'll mention now is I think that it's super important to put a price tag on, um, quote, household related work, um, because it actually does take time and resources and you got to put a price tag on it, at least to, to help value, to help a couple ha- take an honest look at how they're using their resources. You have to put a price tag on that um, because to outsource, what would it cost to outsource? And if you're deciding make less money so you're not outsourcing that work, it, both sides of the couple really need to take that into consideration because otherwise it leads to that devaluing um, and it doesn't need to. If you put a price tag on it, then you can have an honest negotiation and be like, well, um, do you want to do that? And and my answer to my wife is like, well, actually, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I, so like, how can we, are we going to insource that? Are we going to outsource it? Um, and if so, if we're going to outsource it, what does it cost? Because that need, that's the value that needs to get attached to that work because it's extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of, because achieving wealth is an important thing for a lot of people. Like you said, money is our biggest problem that we have as a society and culture. Everybody wants more of it. There's never enough of it. And, you know, and even people that have money feel like there's probably, you know, not enough of it. And so there's a lot of programs out there that talk about adopting like the wealthy mindset and just changing it. Do you think there's anything missing out there in some of these classes and courses that you can sign up on? Because I'll tell you what, like on social media, like there's a sponsored ad down my newsfeed, like every other, you know, thing. And I, I, I regard them with some skepticism, knowing a person like you and knowing that there's usually a little bit more behind the scenes. And as somebody that, you know, years ago thought, well, if I just meditate more and try to remove the barriers without even knowing where the walls and the barriers were, um, what do you think is missing out there for somebody that's thinking that they need to improve themselves by jumping into one of these wealthy mindset classes? So I, I obviously think um, this is not going to come as a big surprise to you, but I honestly think that um, the majority of our struggles with money are psychological. Somebody's personal finance. Um, first of all, you're going to have a select group of people who want to in- improve their personal finance or in the course, which is great. So I have a feeling they're going to do good right there. But if you don't really look at the psychological aspects, I feel like you're doing a disservice. Like I just shared that study with you where, you know, the, the information can help bump you up 20%. But if you really get psychologically wrapped around it, seven. And then the other the other, uh, I don't want to say it's a criticism, but something that probably needs to get expanded is the notion of 
um, that positive mental attitude, um, which I think is incredibly important, like an attitude of abundance, visualizing abundance, you know, that kind of thing. Um, sort of the secret, if you remember that, mm-hmm. that, that sort of approach. I love the secret. Um, and that also has to be accompanied by um, actual strategic business-minded actions that take place every single day. So, um, you know, having that really positive mental attitude um, is super important, but it's, it's just totally not enough. You know, if you, I've tried it. Like if you sit and imagine all the checks coming to your mailbox um, without an actual business model, there will be no checks coming to your mailbox. <laughs> right. True. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice thought too. And I did, you know, one point in time, I taped up like a $2 million check on my mirror because I thought, well, that's just going to do it. <laughs> and you know what? It never showed up. <laughs> you, you know what? You know what? But it, it's actually, it's, it's, it's an important element. It's actually an important element. Like, I love the idea of having that number that you want. I think it's hugely important. And I think it's incredibly powerful to visualize what it would be like to have that um, and what you would do with it. Um, and what that would be like. And so very, very important in terms of motivation. And then you need to, you know, look, take your eyes off that and then actually put up his paper and start outlining what you're going to do today. What's your one month, your, you know, three month, your three year plan, who the people you need to execute to get that $2 million. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, so I want to finish this up then. Um, Again, you know, I I, I want women that are listening to the show to to know and understand, like, what's their next step? What do you you recommend for anybody that is sitting there going, yeah, I totally sell myself short. Yes, I have a lot of difficulties with asserting myself, you know, in uh, setting my value. I don't know why the voices are in my head, or maybe they do know why those, you know, those little voices and messages are in their head. Um, Where does somebody go, um, you know, to get started? on getting maybe a, a handle on the psychology of what's holding them back financially and, and, and asserting their value? So, um, you know, I think the, the most critical part is, is just sort of recognizing and owning and accepting that, yes, your psychology is playing a role. That's a huge leap to make. Um, and if you can really make that leap, you're sort of leaving yourself, you get reprogrammed, if you will. And so searching for that repro- those reprogramming opportunities um, one that I would suggest people do like immediately is look around in your current network um, and look for somebody who's a step or two ahead of you, you know, along a path you want to go. And um, then, you know, ask that person for some advice, buy them lunch. You know, people love to do this, by the way. Um, can I take you out to lunch and just sort of pick your brain? Of course you can. I'd love to talk about myself. Um, and, and so you'll find a lot of receptive people. Now, if you go to um, Tony Robbins and you say, hey, let's have, you know, coffee, he's probably going to say no if you ever got a hold of him because he's busy and you don't know him. But you can, you can definitely access that mentoring by looking a couple steps ahead of you. Like, for example, if you wanted to write a book, the last thing you should ever do is talk to somebody who's never written a book because they're going to give you the, you know, the hundred ways to not write a book. Um, whereas, whereas if you go to somebody who actually written a book, um, they'll actually will tell you, yeah, well, of course you can write a book. I mean, obviously, you know, right. um, you can do that. I mean, if I did, if I did it, you can do it. I mean, um, and so, and then you'll be like, oh, wow. So that's a mindset shift, isn't it? Like, you mean, I could actually do this. Yeah. Get around people who are actually doing it and they're going to tell you, of course you can actually do it. Um, so get finding those opportunities to get in front of those people for my work. Um, I'm trying to put as much of it as I can for free on YouTube. So I've got a YouTube channel, Dr. Brad Klontz, where um, I talk about financial psychology. Um, and, I, and I have some exercises in some of those videos and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, 
looking for, and there are other people on YouTube who work on sort of shifting that mindset. Like Tony, I mentioned Tony Robbins. He's a big mindset shifter type person. Um, so looking for those, those opportunities to sort of pop yourself out of the reality you have. We all have a restricted view of reality, but just understanding there, there are other ways to look at your life and situation and, your, and other opportunities that are right in front of you right now, but you're just not seeing them because you're not being programmed to see them. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's great. Well, Brad, I love talking to you so much. This was uh, another amazing, amazing episode. You do some really great work. Um, and I, you know, honestly, I like calling a little bullshit on some of the financial literacy myself because there's an awful lot of articles that teach you how to balance your checkbook and how many percentages that you should be saving. But it's an astonishing thought to think that it's going to take 43 years for a salary gap to get closed. And that's probably because of a lot of these other elements are just going to take that time, you know, that much time to like shift. And so being able to have a conversation like this um, and, and knowing that women particularly are disadvantaged here and giving them some real insight into what that can be uh, causing that, I think is hugely valuable. And I appreciate your time. I value your time, Dr. Klontz, for coming on One Broken Mom with me. Uh, well, no charge for you, but I, I should think about why that is. Right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Amy. Thank right. you for having me. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiracone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Quirconi, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.